Thank you very much, guys. I don't know if uh, I wasn't in here. I, the Grace Connection class ran long. I'm going to have to talk to the teachers of that. I was the teacher today. <laughs> but uh, I don't know if David told you, but he was very sick yesterday. Um, he said it was the worst stomach bug he's maybe ever had in his life. So if you were with David on Friday, please identify yourself. We want to keep an eye on you. And if you run out of the, you know, like this, we're going to. So, but thank you very much. I texted him last night and said, who's going to lead? Um, but thank you, David, for continuing to do that. And thank you, Lee, for stepping up. I don't know if those were your assigned duties this morning. But all of the worship team, I'm just so grateful. Because of the weather, they had to come in extra early this morning. They do a lot to serve us with very little pay. I won't tell you how much we give them, but I'm just kidding. Nothing except our gratitude. A couple of things. Yesterday was our first meeting of the Grace Mission team. We're we're, we're studying missions. What, what What does missions, what does that connotate? What does it mean? Actually, we want to talk more about mission than we do missions. It's the Grace mission team, but we're really talking about a global mission team. We're talking about taking the gospel to the world, but but remembering that global means it's in our community as well as out there. We had a great morning yesterday, and it's not too late to jump in. Come back 9 o'clock Saturday morning. If you're interested at all at what God's doing around the world, this would be a great place for you to be tomorrow. Then uh, one other thing I want to share with you is that uh, last week we interviewed Ricky and April Lee. Uh, the elders have been in communication with Ricky and April. Didn't necessarily plan to replace Sean, that position, very quickly. And it appears that the Lord is just opening this up. We're continuing to pray. You will hear from us soon on that. Just pray with us as we make the final decisions about whether or not to consider uh, Rick and April to come and to join our family uh, and to help lead us uh, in kingdom service. I guess there is one last, and this is the benefit, you know, I guess I get an unfair advantage speaking. I can ask for one more personal prayer request. Sarah La, uh, Allison's daughter, my stepdaughter in Italy, very, very sick uh, to the point that she you know, says, oh, I'm so sick, I just want to come home. Pray that she will stay. We've just worked out all the frequent flyer miles, and we're going to see her in April. And I'm going to see Joe and Stefania. They are ecstatic that we are coming. So I don't want to miss this trip. I mean, pray for my dear, precious uh, daughter, Sarala. <clears throat> and if you're new to the church and you know the Cavemen's Call song, Sarala, I shouldn't even have told you that. That's about her on a, on a mission trip in India years ago. Well, has there ever been a society as committed to life as our society is? We are all about life in every form. I'm talking about longevity, quality, purpose, volume, pleasure, travel, as I've just betrayed, meaning, and anything to do with life. We are all about life. The fact that 30 to 32 percent of health care expenditures in this country go to patients in their last year of life tells you what we think about it. In fact, not only have I observed over and over People doing whatever it takes to extend life. I participated in that. I'm telling you, when Linda was sick, I didn't know that much about brain tumors at the time. I, 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 I wanted to just, let's just keep it going until they find a cure for this. And we did whatever it was. And listen, that's God-given. That's a God-given drive that we have. We weren't created to die. Adam and Eve weren't put in the garden to die. Sin changed everything. And so we, it, it, when you see someone that, that, that 
for some reason God is calling or in some way God is calling home and he or she doesn't want to die, that is not an indication that this is not a spiritually minded person at all. We were given the drive to live in a sense. We talk about natural uh, death being natural. In a sense, death is very unnatural. It wasn't the original design. And we are designed to live forever. We will live forever in one way or another and in one place or another. So life, we're all about life. And, 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 and in our affluent and sterile society... We are allowed to choose the ways that we think about death. We get to watch it on a movie. We have to sort of bolster ourselves sometimes when we know that's what it's about. Or we get to do it in video games. Some of you were distraught last year at the accidental death at the end of the Downton Abbey series last year. That's nothing compared to how upset you're going to be tonight when you see that show. I'm just kidding about that. I'm Uh, But think about that. It's true, isn't it? Allison and I were blessed and privileged to be with Albert McKinney, with Kathleen, when Albert went to be with the Lord. And Allison said, that's the first time I've ever been with someone who died. She was with her father, but had stepped out. and, And when they came back, he had gone, as is so often the case, you know, people feels like choose to die when when the family steps out for a meal finally after days of being by someone's bedside but we're isolated from death our society is about life but the life of a Christ follower isn't about life it's counterintuitive in just about every was respect our king was born in a stable for goodness sakes and lived a very humble life all of his life he was rejected by the people he created his kingdom is not of this world the the message of mark 8 tells us that the king would be horribly mistreated by his own people and handed over the romans to be crucified That's just about more than the disciples could take. Wait, though, Jesus said, there's more. If you hope to have any life at all, you're going to have to take up your cross every day and be willing to die. The way to live is to die. Today's text marks a turning point. We're going through the gospel of Mark, and now we've turned. Jesus has been... Claiming to be the Messiah, he has been stating his, his role and his position in this world and his personhood, who he is. He's done miracles to, to prove it. The religious leaders have fought against him because he's teaching something differently than they had come to teach by their traditions. Not by the word of God, but by their traditions. They had come to believe differently than scripture had stated and they were teaching that. So... Now, though, Jesus says, okay, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And the, the disciples' reaction is astounding when Jesus tells them he's going to go. To, well, no, it's not really. It's not really. It's, it's, it's the same reaction we would have had. The, the text for today is Mark 8, 27 to 38. Now, after today, we're going to take a, a two-week break. Next Sunday... We're going to ordain Sean Cross to the gospel ministry. We've heard him preach. We think he'll do all right, you know, in time. (laughs) He's had the calling for a while. We're affirming what we know to be God's calling on his life. And we are going to, what a blessing it is for Sean and Melissa to have been a part of this body like they have for so many years. And what a blessing it is for our elders to lay hands on Sean and to say, we ordain you by the will of God to the ministry of the gospel in the kingdom, in his church. And what a blessing that Sean and Melissa repeatedly point out, we're not leaving you. We're going as your ambassadors and in a very real sense, you were going with us. And I hope I-95 between here 
in D.C. is well-worn by Grace Community Church. Brothers and sisters who are going to check on our satellite church, you know, up there in D.C. We know what's best, so we can straighten them D.C. people out a little bit, maybe. We got just a couple to do it. Before I read our text today, remember, and, and, and I'm sorry, let me, I was going to say that in the, last, the next Sunday, March the 2nd, uh, Sean will be preaching, and it may be the last time there with us. So uh, our hearts are going to be very much in tune with them the next two weeks, and, and they can't see everybody, so only invite them over if you plan to support them. That's the way that goes. Just, just kidding. Just kidding. So before I read today's text, remember that this is preceded by Jesus' two-stage miracle. You know, where he, he, he spits on the man's eyes and put, lays his hands on him. And he says, do you see as a blind man? He says, do you see? I see men walking like trees. Perhaps very likely the man had seen before. Blindness was very common. Poor hygiene, just accidents. They, 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 they couldn't do nearly as much as we can do today. And so he said, I see men walking like trees. And then Jesus touched his eyes a second time. He put his hands on his eyes, fingers on his eyes. And the man saw clearly. What's the point of that miracle? It's so unique in the Gospels. Well, it's so unique. That's redundant, isn't it? it, it it's, it's, it's indicating that the disciples, they, they knew Jesus was sent from God, but they didn't get that he was God. It's a big difference, being sent from God and being God. Man, the first four centuries, four, five, six centuries, to this day that debate rages, not so much in the church. It raged in the early centuries. It was settled. Jesus was God. He is God. Not just sent from God, not created by God, but he is God, co-eternal, co-equal with the Father. They didn't get that. They saw vaguely, they had a sense of who Jesus was, what his mission was. But they would see clearly one day. Right in our text is a time of transition. Mark 8, 27 to 38. Would you please stand as we read this text together? And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. Father, um, we want this life to be not only a blessed life, we want it to be an easy life. It's not what you've called us to. I pray that your word 
would sink deep into our hearts and the Holy Spirit who wrote this word will bring it to life in our hearts and change us. We're incapable of changing ourselves. Change us through the life-giving word. The Holy Spirit. The Father's plan. May we follow Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks and be seated. One of the great things about going through a gospel, one of the four gospel accounts, is that you sort of get a feel of what it was like to be with Jesus. All of Scripture points to Jesus. And yet, God chose that in these four books, we read the account, four out of 66, we read the account of his life, his death, burial, and resurrection. It all points to this, and when you're, when you're taking time to examine a book like Mark, the Gospel of Mark, you sort of feel like you're with him. And so this morning, let's just imagine that we are with Jesus and his disciples. I mean, just smell the Sea of Galilee. Just just sense the thrill of being in Jesus' presence for his teaching and marveling at the miracles, but also feeling the, the hostility that is just under the surface that the, that the religious leaders have toward him. Well, it's actually not under the surface at all. It's very, but you feel that uneasiness in your heart. Why won't the leaders just get it? So Jesus has decided to go back into Caesarea Philippi, into seriously pagan Gentile country. And he's going along, they're walking with the disciples, we're all walking with him. And he's saying, who do men say that I am? And you hear your voice rising with all the other disciples, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. And then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter stops and it's kind of like, you know, traffic, all of a sudden a pile up. Peter looks around at the rest of us and he says, You're the Christ. You're the Holy One of God. Literally, he was saying, you are the anointed one of God. And we're all saying, yes, Jesus, you are sent from God. There's this eager ascent from all around. And you feel yourself so privileged to be one of just a very small inner circle affirming that Jesus is the Christ. Now look, yes, admit it, it's a little troubling that the Jewish leaders don't get who Jesus is, but surely the next miracle will make them see. They're going to get this. They have to come around, don't they? They're going to learn in time that God has sent Jesus to to free Israel from Rome and any other would-be oppressors. And while you're contemplating, you're still contemplating the glorious reality that you have been chosen to be in the inner circle of the Messiah's followers. Jesus begins to tell you that those leaders you're concerned about will hunt him down and like a Gentile dog and kill him. Have him executed. Furthermore, Jesus says this is a necessity. He must suffer at the hands of the leaders. It's not an option. Okay, let's come back to the 21st century. I can't sustain that for the whole time. I'm, I hope you were there. And, and, and we're going to stay there just with different tenses. Can you imagine the shock and the horror that the disciples felt? I mean, Jesus often spoke in parables, riddles, right? They t- constantly, he's saying, do you not get it? And they're saying, no, it's, it's really, Jesus, I mean, you're this leader that, I want to say mystical, but I don't get it. Now, he speaks very plainly. There's no question. He's not saying something that's coded. He said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and they're going to kill me. The disciples, just like everybody else in, 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 in Israel, had a script for the Messiah, and this wasn't it. I mean, they had it all written out. They had it all planned out. 
One of the reasons that the Pharisees rejected them was because on their timetable, they had Jesus come in two or three hundred years later. And it wouldn't have necessarily been named Jesus. And he certainly wouldn't have been born like he was. The disciples got past all of that and said, you're the Messiah. I get it. Believe it. But being killed? You're talking like a crazy man. The Greek indicates a very sharp reaction by Peter. He used the same language and tone that Jesus used in, in casting out demons. Shut up, Jesus! Don't say such a thing! You can't be serious! Now, once again, I'm fairly certain that all the disciples were in agreement with Peter, both in his affirmation of Jesus as Messiah and in his sharp correction of the one he had just proclaimed to be king. Peter, no doubt, had plenty of company. Everybody was saying exactly, just like they had all said, yeah, 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 you're the Messiah. They were saying, yeah, don't say such a thing. What are you you talking about? It's just that Peter was the spokesman. Imagine that. Have you ever rebuked a superior? I don't mean in an insolent, impudent way. I don't mean that you sassed your parents or you spoke out of turn to your boss. But do you recall a time when a parent or a boss was about to make a really bad decision and you intervened? And you said, wait, 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 wait. We need to think about this. You're, you're about to make a bet. How did that work out for you? I'm going to guess that in some cases, they came back to you later and said, thank you so much. You saw what I didn't see. And I appreciate you keeping me from going over the cliff. Not only was that not the case with Jesus, But he responded with equal fervor, maybe more so. Get behind me, Satan, devil. You're talking, you're the devil tempting me. You're not seeking the things of God. You're seeking the things of man. These were the harshest words Jesus ever spoke to a devoted follower. And what he said to Peter, he said to all of the disciples who were in agreement with Peter. It's not that Jesus was trying to outshout Peter to show him who was boss. That wasn't his point. It's not like he's saying, you listen here, buddy. Jesus knew what lay before him. He was willing to die for sinners, but he dreaded being spiritually separated, as we talked about last week, descending into hell On that cross. From his father. He would be separated from his father. It would be. The equivalent of an eternity of hell. For Peter. That Jesus would endure. For me. Peter's words. Were a legitimate temptation. To Jesus. He did not want to die in that way. But he wanted less to deviate from the Father's will. And he wanted less to not die for sinners. Jesus' love was too great for that. And by the way, as much as Jesus loved you and me to die for us, It was far more important to him that he obey the Father's will than it was just to die because he loved us the way that he did. Otherwise, why would he pray, Father, if there's any other way, please, nevertheless, not my will, but your will. And Jesus' death frees us to live and to love truly. Psychologists, sociologists will agree that it's impossible, absolutely impossible for us to care for others with absolutely no self-centered motivation. 
Not that some of us would not like to live that way, but we're incapable of living that way. And that's a triple negative, so you know it's, it's a big deal. And yet, Jesus was not tainted with sin as we are. His sacrifice was offered in the purest form imaginable. When the disciples were with Jesus, don't you know that they were impressed with his incredibly selfless sacrifice to others, denying himself, going without so that others might have? When Peter rebuked Jesus, he had no idea that Jesus was speaking of the most unimaginably loving thing anybody would ever do for anyone. By dying for me, Jesus makes it possible for me to live a ridiculously selfless life. Caring far more about your needs than my own. And as we say across the pond, oh goody, I get to live for you instead of me. That's not fun. Now what is fun is acting like I'm living for you instead of me. So that you'll think I'm a noble person. And a wonderful, kind-hearted, it's impossible, isn't it? It's impossible to truly love and live for others in who We are tainted with sin. Thank God for Jesus' rebuke of Peter. Thank God for his rebuke of me. In loving me unconditionally, Jesus taught me how to look beyond the evil intentions or even the good intentions that I have that end up hurting me. My call, my charge is to love others as Jesus loved me. And I can only do that by dying to myself. As Tim Keller says, true love without neediness is generative. It's the only kind of love that makes more of itself as it goes along. That's profound. True love without neediness. Most of our acts of love are Tainted with a desire to receive. When you truly love somebody else selflessly and unconditionally, typically you receive at a very high level. But in the, in the kingdom, as we're serving Jesus in the kingdom and loving others who hate Jesus, it's not going to be so. Look, speaking of um, Keller's, Tim Keller, in preparation for today's message, I read uh, the chapter on this portion of Scripture in his book, Jesus the King. And I can't tell you how tempted I was just to pull it out and read two or three pages to you. I mean, it's so good. It's, it, 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 it deals with all of this at a very high level. So I want to summarize what he says uh, a, a bit about payment for sin. When someone wrongs you in a substantial way, then a debt is established. If someone steals something from you, then they owe you. And if someone takes something that is yours, you've got two choices. You can either seek to force the other person to pay the debt, or you can absorb the loss yourself. When someone takes your reputation, your sense of dignity, your joy, your happiness. There's a very real sense in which a sense of debt is created. Justice demands that wrong be made right. The person owes you and once a sense of debt is established, (coughs) you can either seek payment or you can absorb the loss. The problem with trying to make someone else pay you back is that you can never regain what's been lost. You'll never get it back in the same way. If you break a lamp at my house, is the analogy that Keller uses. If it's a $100 lamp, either you pay the $100, you know, for a new lamp, but it's not the same. 
If someone takes your reputation, you can never get back what you're lost. So the temptation for us is to seek to make the other person pay when they're not willing to. They've taken your reputation. Do what you can to take theirs. Make sure everyone knows what this person did to you. In the process, of course, you become the person you despise. That's the danger, isn't it? The alternative is to forgive. And that hurts. Forgiveness is costly. It can be excruciatingly painful to absorb the debt yourself. Someone else's debt to you. But that's what Jesus did, isn't it? And when you forgive someone at that level and then a friend comes along you know and puts his arm around you and says hey I know what so and so did to you I just want you to know that was a horrible thing and they want to commiserate with you and it's tempting is it not to reclaim the hurt and transfer the debt back to where it rightfully belongs to the other person. See, you've absorbed the loss, but someone says, oh, that was awful, and now you've taken it back. And you're no longer forgiving. You've once again established that the debt belongs to the other person. So you can understand why Jesus would have been tempted to agree with Peter. Have you ever thought about this this week, this way? When Peter says, no, Lord, you can't be serious. Don't talk like that. His eyes go rod and he says, get behind me, Satan. It's the same language that he used in the wilderness when Satan tempted him. And by the way, can you be used of Satan in that way to others? Absolutely, every one of us can. With the best intentions, that's the sad thing. Peter was wanting to say, Lord, no, no, no. And it would have been tempting for Jesus to say, you're right, Peter. I I can do so much more good alive than dead. If Jesus had not died, my debt would remain. My sin would create an expanse between the God of all righteousness and and sinful me that would have have been impossible for me to cover. I could never cover. It did. It already did. Actually, it was Adam's sin that, and I affirm it every day. In fact, I would have found myself paying the debt of the wrong I had done to God for all eternity. We talked about this in fascinating ways yesterday uh, and at the examination when the elders were examining Sean's worthiness to be uh, in pastoral ministry. We knew it. We were, and we had a grand conversation about how necessary it is cosmically, not in the sense, you know, that you might think of. I'm talking about in God's way that God deals with things. It's necessary that there be suffering for all eternity for those whose sins have not been forgiven, for those who have refused to receive the free grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And I would have found myself if Peter had talked Jesus out of dying for all eternity paying for my sin. But Jesus' face was resolutely set toward Jerusalem. He was going there to die, to assume my debt. I had wronged my creator in the worst way imaginable. And he assumed my debt. But death would not win. He would rise again, ensuring not only that my sin is forgiven, but that my resurrection to eternal life is secure. It's sure. I will live with him forever. And after the private conversation with the disciples, Jesus said, look, I want everybody in on this. Anybody who wants to follow me, come over here. I have something to say. And this is what he said. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
Now, by referencing the cross, Jesus was showing how he would die. And it wouldn't be just the Jewish leaders who participated in this. The Romans, if there was going to be a crucifixion, the Romans would have to be involved. Before we talk about that, though, let's, let's go in the order of, for the requirement of a disciple. Here, here's what's required. If you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, three things. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Did you find it odd that when Peter rebuked Jesus for talking about being rejected by the religious leaders who, who would kill him, that Jesus accused Peter for thinking about the things of man rather than the things of God? I mean, this seems like one of the most sincere things Peter ever did. Was to say, Jesus, no, please, please don't talk like that. It can't be this way. And yet Jesus said, no, you're, you don't care about the things of God. You care about the things of man. Peter saying, Jesus, we only want what's best for you. But in reality, he was saying, Jesus, I want what's best for Peter. I want what's best for me. I mean, he had the future all planned out. And it involved stomping on enemies and sitting on thrones. It didn't involve death on a cross. Far from it. But I want to tell you something. It will never be so in the life of a disciple that this life is about stomping on enemies and sitting on thrones. You know, I suppose it's a, it's a good thing that I feel this more all the time, this increasing burden of responsibility when I counsel someone <laughs> who is at a critical juncture in life. And I have those conversations way more than you can imagine. Someone who's at, a, at a, just a, a crossroads. And I don't see myself in the way that some of you see me. It's this, as the pastor, the, as the representative of Christ, and whatever I say is directly from God. But realizing that people see me as a representative of the Lord causes me to have this huge weight of responsibility along with all the elders of our church and the deacons and the home group leaders, all of us, anyone who leads in any way, in a teaching way especially. There's this huge responsibility that we have. And you know what I always want to do when you come to me with a problem? I want to make it better. I want to make it easier. I want life to go well for you. It's my heart. And anything I can do, anything I can do to make it better, I will. I promise you that I seek to speak truth. Even when it's going to be costly to you if you follow it. But I want your life to be easy. But it won't be. Love never is. And that's what all of this is about. The great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind and strength. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. It is surprising how often the word that I seek from heaven is not necessarily the word that I want. In fact, the answer is always to take up my cross. Every day, that's the word from God. Take up your cross. The cross for Jesus meant not only death, but a shameful death. Once again, Jesus... Death had to be that kind of death, a humiliating death, in order to pay for sins. Why? Well, not only that it was, it wasn't as God's determination, but it's the way of justice. It's paying that debt. That's why family members of victims are allowed to witness the execution of the one who murdered their loved one. Whether you believe in the death penalty or not. That's the, that's the rationale behind it. That's the thinking of it. Execution. 
by the state is a form of humiliation. You've done this horrible thing. Now you will be put to death. It's the worst they can do. Jesus' execution, just crucifixion as as a whole, was way worse than anything we would think about. Look, we made execution here more and more humane until finally we say, no, we're not, we're not going to do that anymore. We don't, think it's, we don't think it's right. As a nation, that's what we're saying. Jesus' execution on the cross was far worse than you can imagine even. I mean, likely he was cru- crucified absolutely naked, not with the loincloth that you see in the, in the depictions of his death. It's also likely that the cross was much lower, much closer to eye level with the mockers and the accusers and the people spinning on him, then again, we see in the pictures. And think about it. If I'm going to be crucified naked on a cross, I want to be up, not down low, where I can look you in the eye. Humiliating. And he calls you to pick up your cross and follow him. To take up your cross means to be associated with the shame of Christ's death. When Paul said in 1 Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles. He was acknowledging the shame associated with the message that the hope of the world lay in the Savior. Who was put to death in such a way that respectable company, respectable people wouldn't even talk about it in polite company. It's a horrible, horrible way to die. And now Paul says, we preach the foolishness of the cross. Because it is crazy to anybody that heard it in that day. You're you're out of your mind. And Jesus was calling his disciples to that kind of life. I mean, it was already embarrassing enough that he was ridiculed by the religious leaders. But again, I'm sure the disciples thought this, that'll be sorted out in time. But it wouldn't. So how are you bearing Christ's shame? Maybe it's someone who, in your family who calls you a fanatic. I, actually, I, honestly... I don't see how you can be a disciple and nobody thinks you're a fanatic. It just goes with the territory. Quit trying to be just like the world so that they'll listen to your message. They don't like the message anyway. And if you're just like them, what have you got to offer? That's not the life to which Jesus called you. He said, take up your cross. Maybe they call you preacher at work. Or maybe they just call you a nut job. If you're not suffering some shame for the cross of Jesus, can you really be carrying the cross that he crafted for you? Now look, your suffering, your physical suffering may be called Caused by spiritual attacks. You know that conversation that Satan and God had over Job. That could be happening in your life because of of the way that you're living. Satan could have attacked you with God superintending all of that. That could be spiritual warfare because of your righteousness. But that's not bearing your cross. Bearing your cross is to take up the shame that goes with being identified with Jesus. I want to tell you something. That's going to be a lot easier as the years go by. If you really want to be considered a Christian, it's going to be easier and easier. Because if you say, I believe this book and everything that it says about it, starting with that the only hope of heaven is through Jesus, you're going to be increasingly seen as dangerous to society. You start doing the other stuff and, man, you really... You real, you've 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 gone past meddling. Now you're 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 bordering on criminal activity. Maybe not. Maybe it turns around. Maybe it doesn't happen for you know fifty, sixty, eighty years. Sooner or later, it will. But you've got to be willing to do it. To take up the cross and bear the shame 
of the Savior in this world. Means that the world is going to hate you, mock you, and seek to hurt you. They will hurt you, that is, if they know that you belong to Jesus. Now, please hear me. You need to let the message of the cross be the offense, not the way you present the cross, nor your attitude. Now, look, I've said this before. And I know it probably irks some of you, but Fox News cannot be helping you bear the cross the right way. If you have that attitude, it's not. Neither is CNN. So wipe that socialistic smile off your face if you're from a different person. But wait a minute. That, but see, that's the whole deal, isn't it? That's the whole deal. I can't do it like that. I can't rage with the political warfare of the kingdom of this world. I can't impose the kingdom of God on people. The kingdom of God is not stand up for your rights. Make sure the country gets it right. It's to follow Jesus with the cross. And it has to be done His way. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. And in so doing, you make the way for people to see the cross. How can the message of the cross be a hopeful message? Because as surely as life follows death, or life follows death, just as surely as Jesus' resurrection follows his humiliating death and burial. Death has no more sting. The grave has no more victory. And though your cross will not be laid down until the day that you are face to face with the Savior. Even so, there is life for me when I'm willing to take up the cross of Christ. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Paradox. How does that work? Well, when we die to ourselves, we die to the first Adam who is within us. And when the first Adam dies, the last Adam, who is Jesus, for those of us who believe him, have put our trust in him, steps forward to love others and to give life. We find life ourselves when we die. A life worth living. A life with purpose. A life that is lived for the king. It's the kind of life that led Jim Elliot to say, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. We seek to keep this life at all cost. To gain what he cannot lose. And Jim Elliot, that brilliant young man, murdered by the people he went to serve. And his death, his rotting body, served as fertilizer, and it brought life to the Indians. God chose to the Indians in, South, in Central America, in Ecuador. That's right, right? Am I right, Ted? Jim Elliott was in Ecuador. And it was the Alca Indians, is that correct? And God may choose to do that. Now look, wouldn't, wouldn't it have been better for Jim Elliott to live than die as a young man? I mean, just think of all the quotes. That's a great quote. Think of all the quotes we could have had from Jim Elliott. Well, we might not have that quote if he hadn't died. So you see how the kingdom, God's way of running it is not our way. To live for yourself is to put your soul in jeopardy. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 
For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Does that text make you shudder? It should. If you've been living life for yourself, even though your trust is in Jesus for eternal life, should you be scared because of this verse? Well, no, but you should be chastened. You should say, all right, enough. Enough about me having it my way. Because people who have it their way end up in hell. Is that not what he's saying? Quit living for yourself. You will only lose your life in the process. C.S. Lewis said it this way at the end of Mere Christianity. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it, repeating the words of the Savior. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that is not, has, not, has not died will ever be raised from the dead. So it's kind of like a walking death until you die to yourself. And then it's raised. Look For yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says... Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the right time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Then He says, Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. Resist Him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by all your brotherhood around the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, God of all grace, who has called you to himself, to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. And God's people said, Amen.